Senator, may we not finish. drop this? Let's we know finish. he belongs to the Lawyers Guild. And Mr. Cole nods his head at me. I did you, I think, no personal injury, Mr. Cole. No, sir. I meant to do you no personal injury. No. And if I did, I beg your pardon. That was a lawyer named Joseph Welch. He's sitting in Congress. It is April of 1954. Mr. Welch is the chief counsel for the U.S. Army, and he is defending his clients, a number of Army personnel who are accused of being communists. The accuser was a senator from Wisconsin named Joseph McCarthy. McCarthy had been relentless, questioning the Army lawyers all day, bullying them with rhetoric and logically false arguments. McCarthy had been on a huge national crusade for nearly five years now, and this moment was the beginning of the end for his battle against what he considered to be America's greatest threat, communism. You see, Joseph McCarthy had lost steam. He had spent the last several years fighting a fight that he had an honest shot of winning. The fear of communism was persistent in the American public, and if he had remained on course, it likely would have been disastrous for even more Americans than he had already affected. Joseph McCarthy may have been able to eliminate all enemies in one fell swoop, but in 1954, he made a fatal misstep. Coming off of the Second World War, America had nothing but love for its veterans, the Army, the Navy, and beyond. McCarthy had caught wind of apparent enemies in the army, communists, so he did what he had been doing for years. He turned his withering legislative gaze upon them. But this was an error in his plan, the hole in his armor. You did not come for the army in 1954, not while Dwight D. Eisenhower, the former leader of the Allied armies, was sitting in the White House. If McCarthy had seemed desperate before, he certainly looked at the end of his rope now. The proceedings were going poorly, and in a famous moment during these proceedings, Joseph Welch, who you just heard speaking, snapped at Joseph McCarthy. He had been level in tone up to that point, but McCarthy had pushed him too far. In a moment of startling candor, he moves up to the microphone and harshly responds. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? broadcast live on national television on ABC, it's believed that these hearings were seen by 20 million Americans. The committee in the end brought about few consequences to those that McCarthy saw unfit or quote-unquote un-American. Rather, the greatest blow that these hearings had on any member of Congress or the military was upon Joseph McCarthy himself. Over the course of the weeks that the hearings were being broadcast live across the country, McCarthy's approval was waning in the public, and fellow senators began to publicly shame him for the phony and fraudster that they all discovered him to be. Even those who agreed with McCarthy's ideas to root out the apparent communists and the government found his behavior and the means by which he sought about exposing them to be reprehensible. They may have had the same goal, but McCarthy's penchant toward falsehoods and exaggerations made the entire crusade seem as foolish as it may have been. In a scathing report, iconic American newsman Edward R. Murrow quotes Shakespeare to denote the problematic behavior of Senator Joseph McCarthy. It aired in March of 1954, before even the incident with the Army lawyer. Here's a clip from CBS News. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. 
Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night and good luck. By the summer of 1954, McCarthy was censured by the Senate, meaning a formal condemnation by Congress. Congress raised 46 counts, but only formally slapped him with two. The Senate formally condemned him in December of the same year. He remained in the Senate, but his crusade was over. His beliefs apparently were still held in private. At the exact same time as Congress grappled with their own soul, the state of Florida was ousting Charlie Johns, the leader of a group of conservative Democrat politicians, from his position as governor. He spent his brief time in the governor's office creating more enemies in an attempt to keep his allies in power and their ideals secure in the government. He lost the Democratic candidacy to a rival, Leroy Collins. Johns, back in the Senate, and seeking new ways to hold his position in the state, looked for inspiration. He found it across the aisle and at the federal level in the actions of Joseph McCarthy. By the mid-50s, he had formed a committee of his own, modeled after McCarthy's, persecuting enemies he himself found destructive to Florida's future, and spent the next decade destroying his own reputation for the sake of retaining power that was inevitably slipping from his hands. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the second half of our story about the Pork Chop Gang, the combative group of conservative Democrats who ruled Florida's legislature for decades. Last week, we discussed their origins and near demise. If you haven't heard it yet, go back and give that episode a listen. It provides a lot of context for what we're about to talk about today, and it's a fascinating story. This week, we're discussing the last gasp of the Pork Chop Gang, their attempts at McCarthyism, and the horrors that paranoia wrought on the lives of Floridians in the form of the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare. It's the Pork Chop Gang Part 2, The Scares. You remember Seth Weitz. He's a history professor at Dalton State College in Georgia. His 200-plus page dissertation on the Pork Chop Gang is a remarkable piece of history, and he's sharing with us everything he learned about this period. When we last saw the Pork Chop Gang, they were grappling with their loss of power and determined to retain their racist and power-hungry ideologies as progressive ideas overtook the state of Florida. Copying Joseph McCarthy, their leader, Charlie Johns, formed his own investigative committee. Charlie Johns had actually come up with the idea for an investigative committee back in 1953, and he wanted to investigate gambling and other vices in South Florida. Remember, the war between what North Florida wanted and what South Florida wanted was far more than just a geographical conflict. The North of Florida was still highly conservative, ruled by Charlie Johns and his fellow Democrats, using a broken political system to keep them in power in the legislature. The South of Florida was not so singular, but there were folks from the Northeastern states moving to Miami's surrounding counties in massive numbers. Many of those votes were more Republican and less aligned with the Democrats along the panhandle at that time. With the end of segregation beginning in the Supreme Court in 1954, the gulf between the South and the rest of the country grew wider, with many state governments wanting to keep the racist laws in place. 
John certainly did, but then-Governor Leroy Collins wanted to follow the federal rule of law, which meant integration was going to begin in Florida. Johns wanted this investigative committee to be his weapon against those forward motions that he so despised. Charlie Johns, you know, after he's, he never gets off the ground with his committee to investigate vice and, and vices and all this stuff. But after Brown v. Board, he's like, wait a minute, we got to do something. The state's under attack. And he can't just come out and say, I want to form this committee to attack the NAACP. As much as the majority of Floridians don't want integration, he can't just come out and say, I'm forming a committee to halt integration. So he says, I'm forming a committee to investigate, you know, what's obviously the hot topic of the day, communism, and and other subversive activity. So they formed the Florida Legislative Investigative Committee, FLIC, which becomes known as the, the Johns Committee because he chairs it for you know most of its 11-year existence. The first thing or entity that they investigate is the NAACP. The NAACP, or the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, had been working hard in the state of Florida for years. Lawyers, such as future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, were fighting criminal justice cases related to black communities on behalf of the NAACP throughout Florida. Segregation was coming to an end nationally with the decision of Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, integration was federally mandated, and Florida's conservative Democrats, like the Pork Chop Gang, were desperate to prevent that by any means necessary. They viewed the NAACP as a clear enemy in this particular cause, but they couldn't really do anything to fight integration anymore. They used up all their options, especially with Leroy Collins leaning towards implementing it. With the Johns Committee, the Pork Chop Gang now wielded a legislative knife. If they could prove that the NAACP were the enemy to everyone, they could quell their influence in Florida. Their main aim is to halt integration because they feel that integration and civil rights are going to drastically change the power structure of the state. If African Americans gain power and gain the right to vote, they're going to lose power. The Old South is under attack, white supremacy is under attack, North Florida, the pork chop, all of this is under attack. They need to halt it, and, and this is the best way to attack it. Maybe, just maybe, if the NAACP were stopped, then integration and civil rights would be stopped as well. So, they followed Joseph McCarthy's lead. Of course, they stated publicly and to the governor that it was not a committee for witch hunts, but to root out genuine threats. Nevertheless, almost immediately, they showed their true intentions. At the same time as the bus boycott was occurring in Montgomery, Alabama, a two-fold bus boycott was occurring in Tallahassee and Miami. Naturally, the Pork Chop Gang was furious at the boycotts alongside their ideological allies, the Ku Klux Klan. The danger to the protesters continued to mount. The Johns Committee was soon framing the boycotts and the civil rights movement as quote-unquote un-American, the exact description mounted towards communists for the last several years. The dots they were drawing were easy to connect for the uninformed, everyday Floridian. If the integration boycotts were un-American and the communists were un-American, then the NAACP must be full of communists. They began to hold trials, in a sense, with the NAACP and the boycotters alike. The biggest 
shows. It's like a show trial. You know, it's like it's like a show trial in the Soviet Union almost. But they have a huge show trial down in Miami where they bring in all these members of the NAACP in, in South Florida and they bring them in and they try to get them to talk and they don't get anything out of them. Miami was a hotbed for the change the Johns Committee was trying to stop. Integration was occurring throughout the city in waves and the committee had little they could do. But Charlie Johns had cards up his sleeve. An anti-communist ally named J.B. Matthews had just produced a list of 150 supposed communists who lived in Miami, akin to McCarthy's list a few years earlier. The show trial Seth mentioned was a back and forth of baseless accusations and legal roadblocks. The committee would make a claim, the NAACP would counter it, the committee would hold them in contempt of court, rinse, repeat. It was 1957 now, and with nothing coming from the trials in Miami, the major plan by the committee was to find out who exactly was behind the scenes of the NAACP. They're trying to subpoena the national NAACP for their, their membership list, and the Florida State Supreme Court says you have to give over the membership list, but the United States Supreme Court is, is saying no, and it, it, it goes on for four years. And finally, the United States Supreme Court says, you know, they don't have to give over their membership lists. And by this point, you know, everybody has moved on. They're ultimately unable to paint the NAACP as communist. The problem that Charlie Johns has, or that the Johns Committee has, is they have to go in front of the legislature every two years get money right. and so they have to justify their existence and so after two years you know they, they can't go back and say hey we're doing a bang-up job with the, the communists in the NAACP because they're not the pork choppers were running low on enemies they needed something new something they could direct their ire towards that could ignite passions from their constituents like integration did they needed to prove their worth and they needed to find someone to target. And so they switch to attacking homosexuality. A new scare was brewing within the American people. The Red Scare had come and gone, but dating back to the early days of Joseph McCarthy, another fear bubbled on the horizon. In about the first, I think the first month, after those McCarthy hearings began, over, he received over 25,000 letters. About two-thirds of those letters were citizens concerned with something else he had brought up. Not the communists, but the gay infiltration of the federal government, as he called it. That is Brian Failer. My name is Brian Failer. I'm an associate professor of English at Texas Woman's University. That's in Denton, the northern part of the state. There I teach mostly graduates and upper-level English students history of rhetoric, rhetorical theory, oratory, rhetoric and religion, rhetoric and politics. Brian found out about the pork chop gang through his own field of study. He had been studying cases in the military in Georgia during the 40s and 50s that were putting folks on trial for apparent homosexuality. Through that research, he caught inklings of the work of the Pork Chop Gang, and after finishing his Georgia project, he found himself digging into the strange story of the persecution of homosexuality in the state of Florida. At the federal level, Joseph McCarthy had his own reasons for being concerned. 
in his estimation. The special danger, as he saw it, for gays and lesbians in government was that they were particularly vulnerable to blackmail, not just because they had secrets to hide, as he saw it, but that was a big part of it, but also um, in his definition that he wrote out, that a moral sort of failing, lack of a moral center, lack of a moral fiber. So the next victims that he decided to target were gays and lesbians in the federal government. Things in Florida pivoted slowly at first. The Johns Committee was stubborn in their pursuit of the NAACP, but they eventually found that persecuting homosexuality could prove their value as a legislative organization. They needed to prove they were getting something done in order to continue receiving funding. There were inklings of something going on at state colleges, and the Johns Committee then pivoted their attention. In Seth Weitz's paper about the Porkchop Gang, he notes that Charlie Johns himself considered homosexuality to be a thing of evil that he intended to, quote-unquote, root out. When Charlie Johns was first, you know, serving as interim governor for a couple of years, some administrators at Florida State University, in fact, it was Florida State at that point, brought to his attention what they felt was a kind of a homosexual ring among faculty that, that, that they thought were sort of recruiting students. The fear that there were clandestine homosexual teachers within state schools was apparently about concern that these teachers would be influencing their students. The Red Scare ended, and the Lavender Scare began. The Johns Committee began using a new phrase, deviant behavior. If they could find those within the schools that were participating in said deviant behavior, they could root out the quote-unquote immorality hidden within the schools. Seth and Brian both share the extent to which these investigations into homosexuality in FSU and UF impacted their residents. And that's what they're probably most famous or you know, infamous for is their crusade against homosexuality on college campuses. And that's where they leave, you know, their proverbial black mark um, was their crusade against what they called, you know, sexual deviance. The system that they set up with informers and informants and they set up an interrogation suite in a hotel in, in Gainesville and they set up cameras and recording devices devices in the Alachua County Courthouse. And it was just, you know, you had some like Gestapo style tactics that they had going with help of Gainesville Police and the University of Florida Police and the Alachua County Sheriff's Department. Their methods were really, you know, non-constitutional, frankly. Uh, they would typically use the power of the investigative subpoena, which they did have that power, to question just about anybody they wanted and often would question people late at night, often would take people to hotel rooms, you know, and what they thought of as scary neighborhoods to question people at night, would threaten to phone employers, would threaten to phone spouses if they, if they were married threaten really to ruin the livelihoods and really the lives of people. Professors in the universities, students in the universities would often be marched right out of class in front of everybody by an armed officer, taken to some place to be questioned, often questioned for long periods of time, sometimes even under a polygraph. So as you can imagine, it inspired real fear, real terror. One fairly well-known professor 
at University of Florida, Sigismund Dietrich, uh, attempted suicide after being questioned. Thank goodness that, that attempt wasn't successful, but he was dismissed from his job, as were most of the others who were the focus of this investigation, even without real evidence of any kind. Almost, almost all the evidence was really of a hearsay nature. Courts later that looked at a few of these cases would usually throw them out, but people were frankly too afraid. The investigators had too much power. They had the right to look into clinical records. They had the right to look in psychiatric records. So they they used all these rights and abused all these rights and threatened to expose people. Many of the targets were in fact gay and lesbian and closeted. They couldn't be public employees and be gay or lesbian. That was the law of the land. So just by being threatened with exposure, just by being um, charged with these crimes, really without much evidence, most of the people targeted would just not put up a fight, would resign for fear of not finding any kind of job down the line or fear of finding, you know, their families breaking up, that kind of thing, just losing their livelihood, losing friends, family, all of that kind of thing. So the committee intentionally used this power and these scare tactics really just to boost their own reputation and to maintain funding from year to year. University of Florida students acting as informants and you know they had over 20 University of Florida faculty members that were forced to resign. We don't know and we'll probably never know how many University of Florida students left the school I dropped out of school because of this, and it lasted for about four years. This kind of reign of terror in Gainesville. The Johns Committee had been around for six years now, and they turned out very minimal secret dissidents, both within the NAACP and in public colleges. The only thing they actually did was harm the lives of professors and students, with many teachers losing their jobs. They slowed the NAACP from finishing their integration efforts, but even that was chugging forward without them. With the 60s now ramping up and a progressive Democrat in the White House, the pork choppers were slipping further away from their power. Still, they persisted in their pursuit of taking down the lifestyle of the homosexual population, but they were in trouble. The pork chop gang was about to be broken up. You could say their time just ran up or ran out, and what I mean by that is the state and the country changed. The United States and the Supreme Court told them their time was up. There were a bunch of Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court cases on reapportionment in the 1960s. It was happening in Tennessee. A recent case had broken apart a similar situation in their state legislature. Then it happened again in Alabama and in California. Across the country, state governments were being rebalanced. Florida was on the chopping block, and they had one more desperate move to keep their anti-gay crusade alive. While all this was happening, the Johns Committee was, again, sort of desperate to maintain its relevance, and they decided the best way to do that would be to make their work known to the public. They wanted to showcase their work to the public, so they decided to publish some findings, some evidence in what's called the Purple Pamphlet. It's a report, really, on 
their work over the years, but also kind of a it served as intention. Its intent was also sort of serve as the overview of what they thought the gay and lesbian threat was to American life and to Florida life. Put simply, the Purple Pamphlet was a government-produced document for general consumption that, while only being a few pages long, was packed to the brim with bigoted language, homophobic falsehoods, and a general sense of fear on every page. It was produced in 1964 by the Johns Committee and was meant to be their big statement about the dangers of homosexuality. So there was several parts to it. The first part was just just sort of examining what they called the problem itself. Most of that section was made up of brief statements from interviews, short brief statements from letters that they had received over the years. <laughs> just sort of randomly picked. There didn't seem to be much method to the madness. So it sort of told this story of, uh, it referred to uh, the biblical definition of homosexuality as uh, the abomination. So that's where they start with. Brian tells me that not only was the document baseless and bigoted, it also didn't really have anything to say. All of the supposed scientific research was poorly collected and hardly considered scholarly. There was very little to stand on. There was a, a long glossary at the end, for example, that attempted to present sort of a secret language of gay people. <laughs> and it included terms like cute, C-U-T-E, <laughs> and dreamboat, which were clearly just terms in the popular lexicon at the time that had nothing to do with any kind of secret language. So they definitely overplayed their hand with the purple pamphlet. The pamphlet also had a handful of photographs. These photographs were meant to frighten people, but they were merely pictures of men being intimate with each other. And we would look at them today and not think anything of it. There's a, a picture on the cover of two men kissing and sort of a sort of a, out in the woods or something. So, you know, by our standards, very mild sort of pictures at the time. Many in the legislature and many people in the public uh, thought of this document and just entirely obscene and could not believe that Florida had spent um, legislative money on producing such a thing. Some post offices in Florida refused to mail, out, mail it out, calling it obscene. The Johns Committee had made a bit of a tactical error on their part by printing a couple of thousand copies, so 2,000 copies. Instead of just printing it for the legislature and a, and a few other people, they printed 2,000 copies and decided to sell it for a quarter piece and, uh, yeah, and to make a profit. But they didn't realize that it was it's, it, word got out and people were just curious about it. Uh, people wanted to look at it. People were just, you know, as people will be, uh, interesting, new titillating subject matter. They want to have a look. The Mattachine Society, an early gay rights organization at that time, bought up many, many copies of the Purple Pamphlet and upsold them at $2 per copy. They even included an essay in it critiquing the language, but they sold the books nonetheless. There were two sort of reactions, immediate reactions, people just sort of laughing at it, laughing at its content, laughing at the sort of tone of it. That was one reaction, especially by people, you know, on the left. And then people on the right were just horrified to see this kind of obscenity printed by their own government. Thousands of letters went to the, the governor at that time, Governor Bryant. And uh, uh, that started to spell the end, really, of sort of long-standing influence of the Johns Committee. It, the committee would be around for a while, but at this point, Charlie Johns himself is removed as chair of it. Within a year... The Johns Committee was done for. July 1st, 1965, they officially disbanded. 
Charlie Johns never apologized for his work with his committee, never recanted any of the aggressive tactics they took, and was proud of it for years after. His bigotry, both against black Floridians and members of the gay community, remained attached to his name. He seemed to hold no remorse for those he impacted. He left the Senate the following year, in 1966. The 1968 Constitution was eventually updated, reapportioning the state legislature, and by the 70s, Reuben Askew takes the governorship. The legislator put in workarounds, like the Constitution Revision Commission, to prevent folks like the Porkchop Gang from ever holding such power ever again. The last remnants of the Porkchop Gang faded away. All that was left was the ruins they left behind. It's hard to not be afraid of the Porkchop Gang. They all faded away nearly 50 years ago, but it's not impossible to draw a line between their behavior all those years ago and the sort of things that we are afraid of in today's political climate. For many people, McCarthyism never went away. The fear of marginalized groups, the idea that they're the root of all trouble, is still propagated in many popular circles to this day. Seth says that the lesson is to never let it happen again. The biggest thing is power corrupts. <laughs> I know that's probably, I don't know if that's, that's, a, that's a simple answer or a complex answer, but, but power corrupts. People on both sides of the aisle. You have to hold everybody accountable, Democrats, Republicans, whatever. But you have to hold people accountable. You can't just keep voting the same people in office just for the hell of it. And, and that's what, you know, these pork chop gang members were. These guys were in power for 30 or 40 years. And, you know, they had no competition. And the power corrupted them, and they weren't checked in their power. And they ruled over the state as if they were dictators. And they ruled over their counties. It was like a spoil system almost. It was like, what can you do for me? We had in Florida and everywhere else in the South a one-party political system, and so that's what you had. In many places in the South today, we still have one-party political systems, basically. And it's a major problem in politics when you just have blind allegiance to a party or to, or to politicians and you don't question authority. You know, I'm not advocating getting a pitchfork and going and burning things down. In a roundabout way, I'm, I'm, I want people to be more involved in the political process and to become involved and aware of what politicians and, and politics is about and to be more informed, I think. Because I think a major problem with the pork chop gang and and Florida politics and Southern politics in general is you had an ill-informed, uninformed populace just willing to go along with whatever those in power said. And they did it for so long. And the people in power were doing it for their own benefit. We have to learn from the things that the villains in our history books teach us. We have to see them for what they are. They hurt people, and they did it on purpose, and they never felt shame about it. If we are to honor the memory of all the citizens of our state who were terrified, threatened, injured, or pushed aside by the Johns Committee, we have to be vigilant. It's up to us to make sure that the Pork Chop Gang and their beliefs remain in our far too recent 
history. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. There's actually an episode in our back catalog that's kind of a sequel to this one. It's about Orange Bird, the animated orange-themed bird that was designed by Disney back in the 70s. It is directly related to the gay rights movement that was being affected by the behavior that the Pork Chop Gang started in the 60s. You should really give that story a listen. I'm very proud of that episode. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I'm looking for new stories for the next season. If you have an idea, send it my way. I am so looking forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to our guests in this episode. Seth Weitz has a book that you should check out. He was such a delight to talk to. I am so grateful that I got to talk to him for two episodes, and I plan on working with him again in the future. Brian Failer was so wonderful, so eager to talk about the Purple Pamphlet and the Pork Chop Gang. We had such a great chat before we even got into talking about the topics in this episode. You can find more of his work and Seth's at the links below. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. All right, so we're at the end of the season now, and I have a special holiday episode that's coming out. I was going to release it next Monday for the finale, but I want you to have more time with it until the holiday season wraps up by Christmas and, and New Year. So you can expect the Wait 5 Minutes holiday episode in four days on Friday the 18th of December. It is going to be chock full of guests, friends, stories. It's going to be a wonderful, cheerful holiday episode filled with stories from around Florida, from many different perspectives. I cannot tell you the joy that I have had putting it together, and I hope that it is a joyful experience for you, a wonderful way to wrap up this year together. I'll see you Friday with that episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. And please, drink more water. Have a good week. I will see you on Friday.